This is Leadership Letters, the podcast reflecting on and discussing all things leadership. Coming up... My intent is that there's some things here that help you. Whom am I okay disappointing? That's such a great question. Really love what you said about close the door softly. It's so evocative. I'm CEO. Everyone's going to listen to me. And no, you tell a story for an audience. And the trick to asking questions is that you cannot assume you know the answer. I took the microphone away from you now. Give it back. Hi, I'm Lizzie Bentley Bowers, and welcome to this latest episode of season three of Leadership Letters. Leadership Letters is a place where we'll spend time in conversation with leaders, offering you food for thought, inspiration, tools, techniques, ideas, and thinking through the insights, experiences, and challenges our guests share. Our guests also share their leadership letter and spark more leadership conversation based on what they've written and who they've written to. And a reminder that our sister podcast Towards Leadership is where we'll chew over some of what we've heard in a bit more detail and where you'll find resources in our read, watch and listen to sections, as well as tools, techniques, reflective exercises and thinking that supports and challenges you as a leader. Whether you've been in the C-suite for many years or you're just starting out in your career with an eye on your future as a leader, there will be something for you. Our guest today is a global leadership consultant and keynote speaker, whose TED talk, How Your Brain Responds to Stories and Why They're Crucial to Leaders, I've shared hundreds of times, including through this podcast. And I'm sure if you haven't seen it yet, you'll want to watch it as soon as you've finished listening to this. As well as working with Fortune 500 companies like General Electric, Facebook, Kate Spade and Microsoft, she guest lectures at universities including the London School of Business, MIT and Stanford. She's a former Head of Culture, Chief Learning Officer and Head of Leadership Development at General Electric and Deloitte and is a frequent contributor to Fast Company. As the CEO and Chief Storyteller of EBA Leadership Group, she helps companies reimagine and evolve how they build leaders and teams transform culture and tell stories. And excitingly, she's publishing The Perfect Story, How to Tell Stories that Inform, Influence and Inspire in 2023. She and I share a passion for the power of stories and for equipping people to tell them. So I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to listen and learn alongside all of you as we welcome Karen Eber to Leadership Letters. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lizzie. I've been so looking forward to this. So Karen, we tend to start by diving into your early experiences of leadership. When you first realized that leaders were a thing and what impact that had on you? I remember being probably like six or seven years old and I was playing uh, soccer in the US football uh, globally. And I was really great at goalie. I was fearless and I would throw myself on the ball. This was before I got glasses and I became afraid of the ball, thinking I was going to knock them off. But I just loved it. And every weekend was playing with other kids in the community and remember in the fuzzy part of my brain that I was playing against this team where in my memory, the kids were like twice my size. They probably were older in age. And I remember being really afraid being the goalie and this game came down to penalty kicks. And the coach whose last name, I don't know, but I remember his name was Carrie. He came up to me and he talked to me in that moment. And he said, just look him in the eye 
they're never going to get it in if you look them in the eye. Like you're better than them. And he just sensed in this moment that I was really nervous and that I needed something. And he came in and he said this thing to me and I stared every single person in the eye and a single ball did not get in. And I thought he was amazing. And this coach like had these moments where he saw I needed something and would come up to me and say something. And I was so young, but I still remember that, that this idea of there can be a moment where you see something where someone needs you to put that proverbial arm around them and give them what they need in that moment. And that stuck with me. And then that's built throughout all of my schooling. I was a musician in the marching band and in all these different situations of leadership and experiencing leaders. And so it started really young and it just continued to build. How do you see that playing out now in leadership? Because I love that the first example that you've given is that of coach, which is in so many ways what a leader is and does. It even extended. I remember going to the grocery store with my father and the we would pay for the groceries and the person would hand back the change and say, have a nice day. And I remember my dad saying to me as we were walking out, do you really think she meant that? Not as a judgmental thing against the person, but trying to point out to me interactions with people and what was sincere and what wasn't. And that also built on my leadership of my dad was really good at illustrating moments or kind of stopping and having me stop and think about moments and think about, was that real or not? Was that meaningful or not? And that, you know, the combination of all these things just compound and it starts to influence the way you think and you start to notice people around you. And I've always been fascinated by what motivates people. So that formed my idea of leadership of how are you understanding what someone is doing, why they're doing it, and how you can help them move forward in the best way possible. And that notion of sincerity and meaning in every tiny interaction that we have, and someone might argue, well, that's not possible. I think you and I probably share a belief that it is. But how do you teach that? How do you help somebody who feels that they're not able to access that or that they don't have the energy for that to do more of it? I Do you think it's possible, but I don't think that everyone does it. I know I don't do it. I certainly get tired and cranky and I'm like, not this time I'm going to peace out. Um, But I do think that there are these moments that we have the opportunity to help people recognize how are you interacting with people? How do you want people to experience you? How are you landing on others? And are you only interacting with people that can benefit from you? or that you can benefit from them? Or are you being thoughtful about the experience you're giving everyone? So you mentioned in my bio, I worked in these roles where I was leading culture in these global organizations. And the only way that works is when you can touch each person and have them think about what does this mean for me? And what do I want to do? And you can't physically communicate with every single person individually. But I found by telling a story, you can connect with people and have them think about what would I do. And that's what the opening story of my TED talk is about. It's about this moment where someone drops a phone down an elevator shaft. And and through the story, you start to recognize how do I interact with people that that sometimes are unseen and would I know them and and what do I want to do and how does that really extend how I treat people overall. So So much of this is awareness and intention, and we need those nudges to be mindful of them. So knowing that we can receive nudges from other people, what would be your advice to a leader who knows they need to nudge themselves on this? If there's not somebody else around, what would you suggest they think or do 
Yeah, I can share what I do, um, especially when I'm tired. I really try to do this when I'm tired because I know my behaviors are not going to be as great as I want them to be. I try before a meeting or an interaction or something where I know I'm engaging other people to just take a quick moment and think, what do I want them to experience and how do I want to show up here? That single question allows for me to, to be thoughtful because maybe I do say, you know what, you are tired and you're cranky and you didn't sleep well and, 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 but how do you put that aside for a moment? Or maybe you recognize that you can't put it aside for a moment. And so therefore maybe you can't be around people in that moment. And so that quick check-in with yourself is a habit you can create. The bigger the stakes, the more often you should do it. But that question can help you just really check yourself and think about what you're doing. And I love the fact that that kind of takes the pressure off us as well, because if we make it about somebody else and our connection with them, we actually take some of that performance pressure off in a way, even though perhaps we, we're encouraging ourselves to perform in order to connect in some way. But it's not about us. And that's actually quite a relief, I think. I think so much of leadership is understanding how you land on others, which can be really different from how you think you're acting. And that is hard and sobering to check in on, but so meaningful because it shows you when there's a disconnect between what you intend and what people experience. And so, so much of it is what do I want people to experience and how do I make sure I'm doing that? You've got vast experience of this. And I know you can give us loads of examples of how it works well, but for people to understand what the impact is, if you don't do things, if there's that disconnect, you just put it so beautifully, the disconnect between how you think you're interacting and how you're actually landing. What have you witnessed the impact of that being? You know, I see it. Um, I've probably done it. I'm, but I can think of examples where I've seen other people do it or I've experienced other people do it where it's often in a presentation, someone comes to share an idea and they're so focused on what they're going to tell and what they're going to say. And they're so focused on themselves that they've never once stopped to think about who am I communicating with and what do I want them to take away? And so it ends up feeling like this ego-driven monologue where they're talking at people, whereas everyone else's brain kind of checks out and they get done speaking and they think they've done this most amazing job. And look at me, I did this speech. Meanwhile, like no one is taking anything away from it. And there's no harm intent, you know, that they're leading with. They're just not paying attention at all to, to what people need. Um, that happens every single day in business and in life. And a quick check-in of, you know, what is it that I want people to come away with and where are they at can make such a big difference in that. And I find that's just a disconnect of if you've never stopped to understand what people experience, you don't realize that, no, you are not the gifted communicator or rapport builder or any of those things that you think you are. So I had a, a CEO that I was working with that is brilliant but he was terrible at communicating. And he thought, because I'm CEO, everyone's going to listen to me. And no, your permission, your position doesn't automatically mandate that people listen to you. And he would spend 30 minutes just stream of conscious rambling, like such a waste of time and money. And then at the end of the 30 minutes, he would say maybe two minutes of really meaningful things that people needed. And someone went to him and said, you know, you have a lot of important messages. What if you spend a few minutes prepping before you talked? And he snapped and he was like, I'm not doing that. I'm not changing my approach. People will listen to what I have to say. And he just could not see like you are losing everyone and you're wasting time all for no reason. 
And if you add it up, that time, that energy, the energy that he spent and what that's worth, let alone the energy of those people who are spending time not really engaged. I mean, the impact is oh, it's oh. easy to underestimate, but it's enormous, isn't it? So enormous. But in his mind, all he could think is, I can't spend that time preparing. That's a waste of time. Instead of recognizing, no, you're actually wasting probably 10 times that amount. And I think sometimes there's a, there's a fear perhaps in that resistance, a fear of perhaps doing things differently. How will this be received? Or perhaps all sorts of assumptions working. So how do you help people overcome a fear of being either perceived differently or experienced differently? If they are trying to do this differently, if they've heard the message, all oh, right, okay, I need to connect better here. But that's actually in itself quite a frightening place to go to. How do you help leaders to overcome that? Vulnerability is real. And whether you're in a leadership role or you are a human, we all have these moments where we're just feeling so exposed and that everyone is looking at us and judging us. And 99% of the time, what we think is going on isn't true. We, we concoct these really elaborate stories in our head and helping people recognize, okay, first that vulnerability is real. Um, it's actually your body saying you're doing something new and different and all the neurochemicals are released that, that trigger that thinking. And so what's happening is a very biological response to it and that's okay. But that doesn't mean that you get to back away from it or that you get to do something different. And so I find that giving people this one question frees up a lot, asking yourself, whom am I okay? Disappointing frees up so much. And it lets you really focus on who are the people that are important to impact here, whether you're speaking or leading or anything like that. It just lets you cut through the noise. Who am I okay disappointing in the situation, in this moment, on this project, with this story? It frees up so much and lets you focus on what is important. That's such a great question. I had an experience recently. I was speaking at my sister's wedding and I was nervous. And I'm not even sure I really was as nervous as I was telling myself I was I think I felt like I had to almost perform the nerves because that's kind of what was expected of me. And my cousin's wife, she said it so brilliantly. I said, oh yeah, I'm a bit nervous. And she said, what would you say if I took the microphone away from you now? Give it back because <laughs> I want to do this and it matters to me. And just like your question, who it's, it's the, same, the same impact, you know, why does this matter? Just cut straight through. It's absolutely brilliant. I have a friend that is um, in the process of changing uh, jobs. So she's leaving one company looking for a different opportunity. And as we were talking about the various changes to resume, CVs, to LinkedIn, uh, she kept saying, but won't the company I'm leaving, like, won't they comment? Won't they say something? And I'm like, who are you doing this for? The people you're leaving or the companies you're looking and the roles you're looking at? It doesn't matter what the company you're leaving says. You're communicating with other people, you're okay disappointing them. It doesn't really matter to you what they think. What matters are the people that you do want to find you, that you do want to respond to your message. And so telling her that, asking her that question, let her cut that noise out. And we all have some group like that, that we feel is lurking over our shoulder, ready to like point a finger at us. And most of the time it's made up in our head and just not worth spending any energy on. And that's the other great thing your question does. It reminds, you know, who who is the audience that matters? Because often the voice that's loudest in our heads is actually the audience that often matters the least. Yeah. But they somehow seem to get the volume in our heads. So again, that question to cut through that, that's great. And I'm really conscious, Karen, that I'm in a place where I'm asking all the questions I want. And I know that our listeners are waiting also to hear your letter. So 
who have you written to and why? And then I'd love to hear your letter if that's okay. I wrote my letter to my niece and nephew. I didn't want to write to a leader in the public realm. I wanted to write to my niece and nephew. They're both high school age and they are leading already in different ways in their life, in different organizations and in leading their friends to different ideas and thinking. And I had some thoughts I wanted to share and encourage them to think about as they move forward in their leadership. Dear Dean and Madison, when I started my first job, I got in the habit of spending time after each project to reflect on what I learned. At first, I noticed small things, gestures I appreciated, non-examples from the leaders who were role modeling what not to do. Over time, I came to recognize I wasn't just reflecting, I was defining my leadership values how I wanted to lead and what I wanted others to experience. As you're moving through the world, you're both already leading in different ways. And I wanted to share this list with you. My intent is that there's some things here that help you, but hopefully I'm influencing you to create your own reflection habit because this is where the best learning comes from. Number one, close doors softly and not too late. Every time I needed a change from a job or a company or even some relationships, I waited a beat too long. By the time I did make a change, I wish I had done something sooner. As a result, I didn't shut the door quietly on the situation. I slammed it. The best lesson I can offer is that when you feel that inkling that it's time to leave a company, a job, or even a relationship, listen to it. Number two. Make sure each person on a team has a voice. The role of the leader isn't to be the smartest person in the room or to hog the oxygen. You learn so much more when you're intentional about making sure you hear from each person. This doesn't mean every discussion or decision requires every single person's input or consensus, but lead by helping amplify voices that are quiet or not heard. Don't assume you know what everyone is thinking. Number three, Recognize that everyone has more abilities and strengths than those with which you are aware. I often start leadership workshops with the question, who here feels like they have untapped potential the company or your leaders aren't taking advantage of? The response has always been the same, whether they're first-time managers or very seasoned leaders. Every single hand has gone up except for one person, and that person was retiring in one month. No one lives in our heads. They don't see the effort we give or the abilities that we have, which means there is always a result between what the leader thinks of the employee and what the employee thinks of themselves. The best leaders figure out the strengths that everyone has and make space to leverage them. Number four, you are always leading even when you aren't in the front of the room. You lead through your actions, who you follow, what you support, and what you encourage. Often it's this reinforcing leadership that is most powerful. Be intentional about how you use it to amplify others' voices and offer support when someone needs it most. Number five, do not follow the need to please, especially with unrealistic expectations. A coworker once told me a story about a ridiculous request a manager made of her because they had planned poorly. She said, don't expect me to replicate your stupidity meaning it wasn't her fault they were in that situation and she shouldn't have to work crazy hours and exhaust herself to get out of it. You don't need to be harsh, but if something feels unrealistic, call it out. Most often there's more than one solution to a problem. Number six, be cautious walking into the middle of a project and starting to criticize. 
if you walk into an existing situation and start judging without asking questions, you look like a jerk. There's usually valid reasons for why things are the way they are, even if you have ideas to change them. Seeking understanding helps win more allies than jumping in without context. Ask questions and get curious. Number seven, recognize the work and efforts of a team. Projects would be nowhere without everyone's contributions. Every project has unsung efforts from team members. Most people want to do a good job and often feel like people at work don't recognize their efforts. Helping someone know that you see and understand what they're doing creates impact and is really powerful. Number eight, questions are your most powerful tool as a leader. Want to get people to trust you? Ask questions about their experience. Want to change the direction of a project or challenge an idea? Ask questions to broaden considerations. Want to give a voice to someone that's having a hard time being heard? Ask them questions. Thoughtful questions not only uncover information, they invite participation and inclusion. And the trick to asking questions is that you cannot assume you know the answer. When you are genuinely curious and listen to the answer, you learn things you didn't expect. Number nine, your wellness is the most important thing. Energy is our limited commodity, not time. We all have the same 24 hours, but spend them very differently by our energy. There's a mental, physical, emotional, and relationship energy that ebbs and flows. Be aware of your energy throughout the week and how you manage it. Number 10, grow your strengths. When we get to play to those things that make us feel strong, we perform better, enjoy ourselves, and are more resilient. We spend more calories per hour versus feeling depleted. If you spend your day doing things that weaken and deplete you, you burn out. Make sure you get to do something each day that strengthens you. Plan ahead and grow your strengths. Leadership is a journey. You can never reach the destination and you are never done, but that journey can be a rewarding one with intention and reflection. Thank you so much, Karen. Goodness, there's a book there. (laughs) (laughs) I hope they'll appreciate it in a few years. Probably not quite yet. I'm sure. And well, I'm I'm nodding away as, as you share all of it. You talked about the habit of reflection being one that you got into early. If there were one that you were to say to Dean and Madison, get this habit in early so that it's with you and would really support and strengthen the others, which of those key factors of leadership would you choose? I'm going to choose two (laughs) because one is a habit and one is a, if I had a do-over, if I had a do-over, I would close doors softly. That would be the, don't wait that extra beat when you're then slamming the door instead of gracefully exiting. Um, So that would be the do-over one. The habit, I think that it is really reflection overall because all of these came through reflection. It is building time each week to really think through how was this week? What made it great or what made it terrible? And how do I feel about how I showed up this week? Because through that, you learn, you see those non-examples and you vow, I will never do that. Or you collect the things that you love. And so I do put time in each Friday to make sure I'm stepping back and thinking and then using that to plan ahead. And so often that's the piece that gets pushed. Protecting that is so important, isn't it? Because without you, you're right, without the reflection, where would any of that have come from. And I really love what you said about close the door softly. It's so evocative because as you say it, you can feel the difference. And I think if we can find ways to give ourselves the physical cues 
what am I really thinking here? What am I about to do? And how much is it what I want to do versus what I'm reacting to? This is my hope also as new generations are entering and maturing through the workforce. I feel like the tolerance is changing, which is wonderful. You know, I'm a Gen X that started the workforce still in the age where you held one or two jobs. You weren't jumping jobs. Um, And so you often put up with leaders or situations, um, toxicity, things, you know, well before things like psychological safety and trust were ever looked at. And we just thought this is work. This is how it is. And now I look at my niece and nephew generation. They're like, why? I love that because they are completely right. And so I'm hoping that it's uh, something that is easier embraced by leaders now. I hope so, too. What would you say is the relationship between a leader telling their own stories and hearing the, or encouraging and hearing and amplifying the voices and the stories of others? I think that a leader can create that by sharing their story. A thoughtfully placed story says to people around you, I trust you enough to share this with you, right? Especially if it's personal and and personal doesn't mean private, doesn't mean oversharing, doesn't mean revealing things that shouldn't be revealed. But every story is personal because it's your perspective. Even if it's about someone else, it is you make it personal. And so when a leader thoughtfully shares a story like that, people that hear it feel like, oh, they feel comfortable sharing this with me. And in turn, they want to share stories back when you create that environment. And so it's important to often start with it, but then be quiet and invite others. Leading with it can make a difference. So when I do leadership workshops, I will often have the leader tell a story at the beginning that helps set the tone and and create that vulnerability and then be quiet and without fail, others start sharing in the room too. And that point that personal doesn't mean private. I think that gets in a lot of people's way. That, you know, how do how do I blend vulnerability with privacy? How do you help leaders to understand what that blend looks and sounds like for them? I get that a lot because of storytelling. The first fear is, do I have to tell a personal story? And when I say yes, I can see them sinking in their facial features droop. And I'm like, let's talk about what personal means because it doesn't mean private. So I have a very high privacy barrier. I very, very seldom talk about family. The fact I talked about my niece and nephew here is is pretty rare. Um, When I do, it's usually through the lens of what I've learned But I will happily share with you stories about failures and mistakes I've made and um, really embarrassing things that have happened. Because to me, there's a service of what I've learned from them and what I feel they can help teach others. And so each person has to figure out what that is for themselves. There will be details that are private that people have to earn the permission to hear. And you choose that. But there are things that will be completely comfortable and you make each story personal by sharing your perspective and what you bring to it. And so working through that, um, there's usually a physical signal when it's private and you're not willing to share it. And then there's other things that are much more comfortable and and easy to get the conversation going. And when they do share those moments and they see the response, they recognize and see the value in that. As you say that, I was reminded of the importance sometimes of repeating a story, either because you're going to be, as a leader, you're going to have several different audiences who need to hear the same message or to conserve your energy as a leader, because you can't come up with a different story for every single thing. So how do you support leaders to 
be comfortable with repeating their stories? And how do you help them keep their stories fresh if they do need to repeat them? So you tell a story for an audience. You may tell the same story different ways to each audience. So I would tell the opening story of my TED Talk about dropping a phone down an elevator shaft to you, very similar to how I did in the TED Talk. But if I was speaking to school-age children, you know, nine or 10, I would change it. And a story is in service of the audience. And so your goal when you're telling a story is to be thinking about what is it that I want my audience to know, think, feel, or do. So you're always starting there. Your story starts with your audience and not the story. That doesn't mean you can't use a story multiple times, but you don't want to tell a story just because you have it. It's like the impulse buy at the the grocery store. You don't want to grab something just because it's there because if it's not meaningful for your audience, it flops. And so first thing is to get really clear on that audience and how you're connecting them to the story. And then the second piece is when you get clear on that, you start to see how to tweak it and, and what to do. It is totally fine to share a story multiple times. What you don't want to do is be the uncle at the holiday table that just has the script of stories that they go through and everyone can, you know, mouth the words to themselves because they heard it so many times. (laughs) I like to think of it as we love hearing the songs from our favorite rock stars and musicians. We don't mind hearing them over and over, um, but we want to hear some other things too. And so, you have to just make sure you have more than your one hit wonder and that it's relevant for your audience. And it circles right back then to what you said at the beginning around meaning and connection and being present with yourself, choosing to be in your own moment. Well, and to build on that, Billy Joel has been a musician for almost five decades, maybe almost six. Um, He notoriously will block the first row of his concerts and won't let people sit there. His He noticed early on that really wealthy people would buy the seats up because it was the best seat in the house. And then they would sit there with a sour look on their face and not tap their head or anything. And he gets his energy from the audience. And so he was getting nothing. And he started to block the first row in every concert. Guards go to the very back of whatever theater, arena, stadium, and they pick people with the worst seats and they bring them to the front row. And they're so excited because now they are front row and he feeds off that energy. And that's how he can play Piano Man for the two millionth time and not go mad. And so there's things like that that you're able to do when you're focused on the audience. It's It becomes more fresh each time because it's different for that audience. That's a great question for leaders. What's my equivalent of bringing somebody to that front row and speaking to them, even if I can't actually physically do that? And really, it's digging into the audience of who am I helping here? Can I, if I'm in person, can I find someone here that I really feel like I'm talking to and I can see the impact of that? Or can I tweak it for what I know about this audience? I want you here for hours, but we have to let you go. Before we do, though, we do always ask our guests, what would be a resource you think our listeners who listen to you speak would really benefit from? There is a neuroscientist out of Claremont University. His name is Dr. Paul Zak, and he is this really interesting neuroscientist where he can go as deep as anyone on the science. He's done the research on the relationship between the neurochemical oxytocin and trust, Um, but he also is an amazing storyteller, and he's looked at how 
stories are impacted by our neurochemicals and how the way you tell a story matters, the impact of it. He recently published a book. It's called Immersion, The Science of the Extraordinary and the Source of Happiness. And it gets into this neuroscience around trust and what motivates decisions and what does help people feel engaged and happy. And while it is a science book, it is a delightful read and a fascinating look at the brain. Isn't that the great thing about stories too? We feel happier when we listen to them. Absolutely. Remind us of the title of your book and how long do we have to wait, Karen? The book is called The Perfect Story, How to Tell Stories That Inform, Influence, and Inspire. And the title came from the very last line of my TED Talk, which is, don't wait for the perfect story. Take your stories and make them perfect. The book is all about how do you find ideas to tell stories for any audience in any situation and recognize that there is no perfect story. It's created through habit and practice and and iteration. And the book takes you through that. It is publishing this fall. So fall 2023. We'll look forward to it. Thank you, Karen. Thank you so much for sharing all that you've shared today. And if you could let Dean and Madison know that I'd love them to come on too. That would be great. They would be delighted to. Thank you so much. So that's it for this episode of Leadership Letters. Remember that the Towards Leadership episode that will be dropping soon will have a deeper dive into some of the things that Karen has been raising. Some examples, some things for you to try, some further insights and some resources to support you in your storytelling as a leader. Please do hit follow to ensure that you get to hear all of that. And do send this on to anyone you think might find it useful in their leadership journey. This is Leadership Letters, a reflection on all things leadership. See you soon.